0: I want to say welcome again to everyone. Um, If you don't know me, if you're visiting, my name is Jeremy Kuhn. I'm one of the elders here at Trinity Church of Spokane Valley. We are disciples of Jesus Christ who exist to know, love, and glorify God in Spokane Valley. We want to help people grow in their knowledge of Christ so that they would know him more and serve faithfully as his disciples to make his name known. If uh, I haven't met you, I'd love to meet you. Paul would love to meet you as well. We want to find out how to serve you, how to get you connected with our body. Um, There's more information about us on our website, uh, trinityspokanevalley.com. There are business cards that have that email address in the back. And there you can find our beliefs, our history, and why we're here. Uh, Speaking of how to get you connected, we have registrations open right now for a couple of things. Uh, The biggest way to get connected with us is uh, by pursuing membership with us. We have a uh, registration open for a membership class. Uh, The next one starts on October 23rd. It's a uh, two-session class, uh, usually about an hour and a half each time on Sunday evenings. Uh, that can be found on our website. There's a link at the bottom of our homepage for classes. And there's also, if you, uh, create a profile on church center, which you'll need to do in order to sign up for anything. Uh, if you have the app, there's a signups tab at the bottom of the homepage on that as well. Uh, our next members meeting will be November 13th. So, uh, that will be a time for us to share some body life stuff that we don't have time for on a Sunday morning. We are introducing a new uh, new thing today, not just being in a new building but also a new element to our service uh, we 'll get to that in a minute, but the reason I want to bring this up now is that there 's a, a survey that went out recently called the state of theology that 's put on by uh, a ministry that seeks to equip people it has a global impact, but what they 'll do is they 'll survey people in the United States and they 'll essentially issue a statement. And then you say whether or not you agree with that statement or not. And these statements are contradictory to what is written in scripture. And the sad news about this state of theology survey is that half of people who identify as evangelicals that, that we would say, yes, you're a believer, um, would affirm these statements that are not true according to God's word. So with that, we're going to be doing, um, two things. We're going to be working on starting our equipping hour that starts next week. Registration is still open for that through the end of today. If you don't register by the end of today, uh, we'll still let you come in, but we can warn you that we're not going to have this resource available for you. So we'll be going through this for our first class. This is um, Built Upon the Rock, the church. It's a healthy church series, Um, a nice little study to work through and get to know basics foundational stuff for, for life and doctrine for the church. Uh, there is also going to be uh, equipping class for our children, which they'll be going through the New City Catechism as a curriculum. And that is also what we are going to be doing as a body together. So in your bulletins, a little trifold piece of paper, uh, there's a section in there under the announcements about what our confession catechism is this is from the new city catechism many of us went through this if we're if you were with us at faith bible church um, we went through this for a little while and it's a nice uh, 52 week um, catechism or 52 question and answers designed to take you through it in once in a year Uh, but these affirm through question and answer and scripture reference to teach us foundational and important doctrines of the Christian faith. So what I'll do this morning and what the practice will be is that I will read the question and then we will all read the answer together and then we'll read the scripture reference together. Um, some of the scripture references just for future reference are going to be too big to fit on this little piece of paper. So I would encourage you to have your copy of the scriptures handy. either on your phone, which I don't prefer or on paper, which I do prefer. Um, that's just preference for me. But anyways, we want to we work through that uh, together. Question, answer, scripture reference. So let's do that now. The New City Chism, question number one is, what is our only hope in life and death? And all together with me, that we are not our own, but belong, body and soul, both in life and death, to God and to our Savior, Jesus Christ. Romans 14, verses 7 through 8 says, For none of us lives to himself, and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. Let's pray. Father, we give you praise as the Lord of all creation, and again we give you praise for your steadfast love and your faithfulness that endures forever. We confess that many of our deeds are worthy of your judgment, a just judgment, because we seek our own interests and we pursue our own kingdom instead of yours. Yet we give you thanks because you have given yourself to us and your Son. You've given your Son to us as a refuge, and we thank you for reconciling us to yourself for finding the perfection that we need in Christ, by whom you purchased us for yourself, for your glory. So we ask that you would increase our faith. We ask that you would help us to trust in your goodness and your faithfulness. We ask that you would protect our unity in the spirit to help us to be humble, to be teachable and self-sacrificing for the sake of your name and for the love of our neighbor. We help us. We ask that you would help us to live lives that we were dying to ourselves and living for others. Father, I pray for Paul now as he comes to deliver your word to us, and I pray for us as listeners and hearers that we would come away as doers of your word for your glory. Amen.
1: Thank you, Jeremy. Well, do you feel like a church plant now? <laughs> this is great, isn't it? A little unique, a little odd. You have to been around the poles to see me, perhaps. Or maybe you sat behind the pole on purpose, so you wouldn't have to see me, maybe. But uh, this this definitely feels like a church plant. But isn't it wonderful that everything that actually matters, we can still do, Right? The Word of God being central in everything that we do and say and sing and read, the Word of God being exalted in our congregation and uh, in our gathering together and i i love I love the group of people here sitting here. I love these people. you are wonderful people, and you have been flexible and have been so encouraging and had great attitudes. Uh, and you are, you are being stretched, and I am thankful that you are willing to come along for this journey together. Uh, wonderful to see you this morning, and excited about uh, being here. I know maybe this is already said, but we will not be in this room every week. A lot of weeks we will be downstairs in the bigger room. Some weeks we'll be up here if they have an event going on downstairs. And so we will have to be flexible with that. Uh, obviously, we don't have the projector and all that. So you you got the little handouts today, which reminds us of when we were at the good old fashioned Baptist church back in the day. Remember that little uh, little pamphlets they used to hand us and everything. That was that was good times, and uh, we get to, we get to live live that again. Uh, but. All these things, right, are just, they're just extras, and we get to be together, and be around God's Word, and hear from God's Word, and that's what's important. And so, let us turn to God's Word this morning, Acts chapter 2, Acts chapter 2 is where we are, Acts chapter 2, beginning in verse 1, I'll read all the way down through verse 21, If you would stand with me, join me in standing for the reading of God's Word. And I'll reiterate what Jeremy said, you want to bring your Bible, because we're not going to be able to project it up on the screen uh, for you, and so you want to make sure you have your Bible, and so you can read along from God's Word. Acts chapter 2, starting in verse 1, listen as I read. They are filled with new wine. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them. Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams, even on my male servants and female servants. In those days I will pour out my Spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above, and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness, and the moon to blood, before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. This passage before us this morning creates a great deal of speculation and debate, creates a great amount of interest. This is one of those texts, by the way, for a preacher that it really isn't hard to come up with something to say. It's rather choosing what to focus on, what needs to be the focus for the morning. There are, indeed, a lot of bad teachings that also come out of this text, a lot of heretical teachings about the Holy Spirit that come from this text. And there are debates regarding the kingdom, the nature of the kingdom, with major major uh, implications, ramifications for us. And there are significant interpretive issues in this passage, which are extremely important to uh, wade through and to talk about. All of these issues are of serious importance and would be worthy of a sermon or of a series of sermons to talk through. But what interests us today, more than any of that, what interests us today is how does Luke mean to communicate this? How does this fit in the context of the book of Acts? What is the importance that Luke is trying to get us to see? Remember, Luke is writing to Theophilus so that Theophilus can be certain. What is Luke wanting his audience to see? What is he wanting his audience to be certain of? What is he wanting his audience to respond to? For us, that is the important question this morning. Not the debates and the speculations and the curiosities. But how are we as God's people to respond to God's word? That's what is most important. The text we have before us comes to us in two parts. First, in verse 1 down through verse 13, we have a supernatural event that takes place. Which then gives way, in verse 14 through 21, and really all the way through chapter 2, Peter is going to preach a sermon. The supernatural event gives way to an interpretation from the Apostle Peter on the meaning of the event. What does this event mean? And this is a pattern throughout the book of Acts. It's kind of nice. It works this way. There is an event, and then there is an interpretation of that event. And throughout the book of Acts, we're going to see that. So let's look first at the event. Let's look first at what happens here in this chapter. On the day of Pentecost. Now stop right there. What is the day of Pentecost? Do you know that? The day of Pentecost was one of, in fact, it was the second of three pilgrimage feasts that all Jews would come to Jerusalem to celebrate, the celebration of Pentecost. It was to happen seven weeks and a day, seven weeks and a day after the feast for the first fruits. So for first fruits, they would come and celebrate the beginning of the harvest. They would bring in the first fruits of the harvest and celebrate what God was giving them. And then Fifty days later, this is why it's called Pentecost, penta meaning five, okay? Fifty weeks later, they would come and celebrate the end of the harvest. So Pentecost was a celebration of the ingathering of the harvest. They were celebrating how God had provided for them. In Jesus' day, the, the day of Pentecost took place fifty days after Passover. Okay, so this is 50 days after Jesus died and rose again. This is when the event takes place. They're there sitting in the upper room. And I thought just for authenticity's sake we would gather in an upper room just to know what that feels like. Here we are in the upper room. They were sitting there and they remember the disposition as we left them in chapter 1. They were sitting and praying together together one accord, waiting for the promise of the Father that Jesus had promised them and told them to wait for. And then all of a sudden, suddenly, it says, a sound like a mighty rushing wind fills the room. Now, this is not actual wind. There's no feeling of wind. It is a sound of wind. And the sound fills the room. With that sound comes tongues of fire. You know what a tongue of fire is, right? You look at the flames and there are these little tongues of flame that come off the fire. A tongue of fire came and rested on each one of them that were there in attendance. Amazing. And with that fire, this is significant. This is significant. God, throughout the scriptures, is known to speak from the fire. And I think that's the significance of what's happening with the flames of fire sitting on each one of them. God speaks from the fire. Think of Exodus and the the burning bush. God speaks to Moses from the fire. This is the picture. And that's exactly what happens with the mighty rushing or the sound of a mighty rushing wind and the tongues of fire resting on each one, there is a supernatural gifting here, it says, of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit filled each one. And they began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now, very quickly, right? we know this is not ecstatic speech or gibberish that they are speaking many times people will say that the tongues given in the book of acts is gibberish but in fact these are real languages you see this very clearly in the text think about how amazing this is the tongues of fire rest on each one and and they begin speaking in other tongues, in other languages. Languages that they did not know to that day. It would be like me beginning to speak in Japanese or German. It it would be like some of us beginning to speak in English. (laughs) Yeah, she got it. It It was a joke. Just seeing if you're still paying attention. Sometimes I look out there I don't know if you're paying attention. These are real languages that they're given to speak. Amazing. Well, what what is it that they are speaking? Right? Down in verse 11, it says, they are speaking in these other tongues the mighty works of God. And there, as this supernatural utterance this gift of the Holy Spirit, which results in their speaking in other tongues, as they are experiencing this, a crowd gathers. At some point, even though the text doesn't tell us this, at some point they've moved out of the upper room. And a crowd, at the noise, a crowd has gathered, and they are listening. Where is this crowd from? Well, Luke lists a, a, a list of nations and regions and cities and places here for us if you looked at a map and i did this this last week i looked up all these places on a map if you look on a map it is literally from every corner of the earth at that time north and south and east and west they are from every nation and that's what it says there were there those From every nation under heaven. Jews. Devout men. From every nation under heaven. That came. And they were amazed. And they heard these tongues. And they heard the mighty works of God being spoken. And and what do they say? How is this possible? That we are hearing. In our own language. in, In the tongue of our Native land where we are from, how is it that we are hearing the mighty works of God spoken in our own language by these men from Galilee? This is impossible. And they were amazed. And there are two responses that you see. You see that there? Two responses. Verse 12, all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, What does this mean? They understand this is significant. What does this mean? And then there are others who mock and say, they are filled with new wine. They're drunk. They mock at what they see. This is instructive for us. When the supernatural occurs, you know the supernatural occurring is not enough. Sometimes people think, well, if I could just see, if I could just see, then I would believe. No. You wouldn't. The supernatural taking place right in front of your eyes is not enough. They are confronted with the same information that the others have, and they choose to mock what they are seeing instead of ask, What does this mean? What is your disposition this morning as you encounter the truth about God, about sin? about judgment, about Christ and who He is, His death and resurrection and ascension. What is your disposition towards the truth that you hear? Is it to mock? Is it to doubt? Is it to question? Is it to reject? Or do you want to hear more? Do you want to know what it means for you? Well, this is glorious. We have a supernatural event taking place here in the scriptures, records it for us. Do, let me ask you this, let me ask you this. Do the supernatural parts of the Bible embarrass you? Do the supernatural parts of the Bible embarrass you? When you're explaining the Bible to your friends or to those that you know, are you a little embarrassed when things like tongues of fire come down and rest on people? It's like, uh, you know, let's don't major on those things. Let's talk about love and let's talk about kindness and let's talk about salvation. But let's don't talk about the supernatural things. That's a little embarrassing. We think... No reasonable, sensible person would believe such things. We don't, we don't want to introduce, though, we don't want to lead with those things. But I want you to know, and I want you to embrace this, the supernatural does not oppose reason. Quite the opposite. It is every bit of reasonable to expect that God would interact with his creation and that when he does, he is able to break the parameters, the rules, the boundaries of nature itself. God made everything. And when he intersects with his creation, when, when he interacts with what he has made, he is not bound by the rules or the parameters of nature. And this is what we call supernatural. God acts in such a way as to break the rules of nature that He has made. Now, we believe that God is at work at all times. God is at work at all times, in all places, providentially. When we say that God works providentially, this is important. When we say that God works providentially, we mean that He is at work through the channels of natural means. Within the limits and parameters of nature. Every detail, every moment, every square inch of the entire material universe is under his sovereign intention. It's under his sovereignty. And this is the truth of his providence. He works in and through all that he has made providentially. However, there are also times and not so often as to become commonplace, by the way, that God does intersect with his creation in a supernatural way. In other words, he breaks or transcends the rules and laws of nature in order to make himself known in a clean or a a plain way, clear and plain way. Supernatural events, then, most often correspond to significant moments in salvation history. When God wants to make himself known in a clear and plain way, he acts supernaturally so that it is unmistakable that it is God acting and, and no one else. His supernatural acts correspond with significant moments of salvation history. And it is these types of moments that are recorded for us throughout Scripture. Scripture is the record of God revealing himself to mankind. And so you have a lot of supernatural events in the Bible. But this is not, and I say this for a reason, this is not how God works most often. In other words, God... Intersecting with his creation in a supernatural way is not normative. It's not normal. If it was normative, that would diminish the significance of the supernatural event in which he is unfolding salvation history. It would de-emphasize the supernatural, which would be counterproductive. So, when we talk about supernatural events that mark salvation history, What do we think of in scripture when you think of that? Well, how about the Exodus? Do you remember the story of the Exodus? God acted to deliver his people from Egypt and he did so in supernatural ways. You can't explain what happened in the Exodus by nature. You can't explain it. It happened in supernatural ways. The signs and events in fact, God went across the street to show that he was not bound by nature. And by so doing, he showed himself greater than all the false gods that the Egyptians worshipped. Think also of the miracles and signs of the prophets throughout the Old Testament the miracles and signs to validate their message, the message that they were bringing from Yahweh. Think of the birth of Jesus, the birth of Jesus by a virgin. That is not possible, by the way, for a virgin to give birth. That is why Jesus was born of a virgin, to show God is intersecting with his creation. And it is God acting, not natural means. Think of Jesus' life, miracles and signs of the life of Jesus to validate his identity and place in salvation history. Think of the substitutionary death of Christ accompanied by many visible signs and supernatural happenings. The resurrection from the dead. Supernatural. A man rose from the dead. That's not possible. That's why it's significant that Jesus did it. The ascension. We were there just last chapter. Remember as the Disciples are sitting there talking to Jesus. He ascends. He breaks the laws of gravity. Supernatural. And the signs and miracles surrounding the mission of the apostles as they go through the book of Acts and through the epistles to validate their place and message in salvation history. You cannot deny it. You cannot deny it. Beloved, our faith, our faith is built on the supernatural. Own it. Embrace it. Our faith is one that finds its grounds in the supernatural work of God. Don't shy away from that. But also... Also, don't act as if everything God does is supernatural. That diminishes, again, the force of the supernatural. Most often, he works through providential means. Now, now, people will read Acts chapter 2 and they will think, well, this is what we need to see now, today. No! That, That would ruin it. He acts in this way because he's trying to communicate something. He's signaling something. This is not normative or the normal way he's going to act with his people. Here in this chapter, we have a supernatural event, which is meant to signify something major is taking place on the salvation history timeline. Something major has happened. And this is is a wonderful reality as well. Listen to this. When God acts, when God acts, He always gives His word to interpret how He has acted. He never just leaves the supernatural event for us to try to make sense of. He always interprets what He does. So God acts, and then God speaks. God acts, and then God speaks. And that is exactly what you have here in Acts chapter 2. This is a supernatural event that requires an interpretation. And Peter steps forward to give us that interpretation. Peter's sermon here in Acts 2 is an interpretation of the event that everyone is seeing. They are amazed, they're perplexed, and they say, what does this mean? And Peter steps forward to tell them in a sermon exactly what it means. We have seen over the last few weeks that Acts is the continuation of Jesus' mission on earth to gather a people for his kingdom by the power of his Holy Spirit. Last week we saw that that mission, Jesus' mission, will not fail. And why? Why? Because the wicked will not succeed. God's word will stand forever. The witness to Jesus will go forth. And how will it go forth? It will go forth in the power of the Holy Spirit. God's supernatural pouring out of the Holy Spirit is what we see before us here. And this supernatural pouring out of the Holy Spirit signifies for us three new realities. Three new realities. Okay, so if you're taking notes Those are going to be the three points, three new realities that the pouring out of the Spirit signifies for us. Reality number one, a new era has dawned. A new era in salvation history has dawned. Now, important to Peter's interpretation here, he quotes from the prophet Joel. Peter quotes from the prophet Joel. Do you remember what the prophet Joel is all about? Do you remember that little book? Last time you read that? Again, you always want to go back and read what's being referenced in the New Testament. Read so you can understand what's being said. In the prophet Joel, in the book of Joel, Joel tells the people of Israel about a judgment that has been uh, made against the people of God, which will cause them to repent. God is judging his people, Israel, and they will repent because of that judgment. And God will dwell with them. God will restore them as a a result of their repentance. He will restore them and live with them and bless them. To signify that restoration, God says he will pour out his spirit upon them. And that's the section that Peter quotes. That pouring out of the spirit also communicates, in the book of Joel, communicates that the day of the Lord is near. So after God restores his people and pours his spirit out upon them, he will then judge all of his enemies in what is known as the day of the Lord. So, Peter begins his interpretation of the event by quoting this passage from Joel. And he tells us there in verse 17 of Acts chapter 2, in the last days. Now, Peter adds that to the quotation. If you look at the book of Joel, it just says after this, after the repentance, God will pour out his spirit upon the people. But... Peter says, in the last days it shall be. God declares that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Here's what Peter says. The pouring out of the spirit that you see before you people. This is signifying that a new era, a new day has come. And this day is called the last days. We live Peter says, in the last days. The last days of salvation history. Now why are they called the last days? They're called the last days because they are contrasted with the former days. The former days are the days of the old covenant. The former days are the days before Jesus comes and dies on the cross and is resurrected. Those are the former days of salvation history. Now we live in the last days. Jesus has come. Jesus has died and risen again. And God, like he has promised, has poured out his spirit upon his people. So what does this mean? That means the next event on the timeline is the day of the Lord. The day that will bring judgment upon the wicked and salvation to the righteous. The New Testament refers to the time we are living in as the last days. Remember Hebrews 1? God spoke to your fathers by the prophets many times, many places. God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, he says in Hebrews 1. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son. These last days are marked by the giving of the Spirit. The giving of the Spirit, Peter says, is nothing less than than the promises of the coming kingdom being realized. That's what Peter is saying. Let me say that again. Peter is saying, the coming of the Spirit, the pouring out of the Spirit, like Joel has told us, the, the pouring out of the Spirit is nothing less than the promises of the coming kingdom being realized. Now, the coincide, this coincides, the coinciding with giving of his spirit is the gathering of his people from the four corners of the earth. So along with the pouring out of his spirit, he is also going to gather his people from the four corners of the earth. Does that make sense? In order to establish his kingdom, he has got to call his people from the four corners of the earth so that he can pour his spirit out upon them so he can begin the kingdom reality. The gathering of his people from the four corners of the earth. They've been scattered because of their sin. And he will regather them. Do you remember the significance of Pentecost? We just talked about it a few moments ago. Pentecost marks what? The ingathering, the bringing in of his people. Right? Pentecost is the bringing in of the harvest. This is the bringing in of his people. And he says, Isaiah 11, he says, Jeremiah 23, I will call them from all the countries that they have been scattered to. From the north, and from the south, and from the east, and from the west. I will bring them in from all those places. And what does he do in Acts chapter 2? He brings them in from all those places. And here they are, hearing the works of God being prophesied or being told in their own tongue. And Peter says, you want to know what this means? You want to know what this means? This means that God is doing what he promised he would do. He's gathered you in and he is pouring out his spirit upon you. The kingdom has come. The kingdom has come. The pouring out of the spirit is the new exodus. The prophets of Israel prophesied concerning the gathering in of God's people. He says the pouring out of the Spirit means that God is fulfilling His kingdom promise. Do you you remember in chapter 1 when the people, the apostles were standing there? And they said, will you at this time restore your kingdom to Israel? Will you at this time restore your kingdom? And he tells them, don't worry about, don't concern yourself with the timing of that. You go and be witnesses. When I pour my Spirit upon you, you'll go be witnesses of me. The timing is up to the Father. Peter, now that the Spirit has been given, now he tells his audience that the kingdom realities are coming. So so in chapter 1, Jesus says, it's not for you to know the times or the seasons. That's up to the Father. You go and be witnesses. Now in chapter 2, we have the pouring out of the Spirit. And Peter's saying, this is what Joel was talking about. The kingdom is coming. You're, you're seeing the kingdom realities come to pass. So is, is Peter jumping the gun here? Has Peter forgot what was talked about in chapter 1? That that's not his job, right? To worry about the times of the kingdom? Is he somehow in error, which is what a lot of people say. Well, Peter's a little mistaken. He got a little excited. He's a little mistaken here. No, no. I believe that what Peter is saying is in perfect step with what God wants to communicate here. It would be really odd for Peter to be mistaken in this case. Peter is interpreting the prophet Joel for us, and he's telling us that the Messianic age has come. The kingdom has come. This reality means that the next event on the salvation history timeline is indeed the day of the Lord, that great and magnificent day when judgment comes for God's enemies and salvation for his people. As the prophets look then at the Messianic age, they see the day of the Lord in the Messianic age being really simultaneous, one event. Think, think of a mountain range. You ever drive and see a mountain range in the distance? You see the mountain range and it looks like one unified, whole from a distance. But then as you get closer to it, you begin to realize that there are several peaks involved in that mountain range and it begins to spread out a little bit. Well, this is the Old Testament prophet's perspective of the day of the Lord, the Messianic age and the day of the Lord being almost simultaneous. But as we get closer, we realize there is some depth here, some distance here. So what's, what's, what's Peter saying? Has the kingdom come? Are you saying, Paul, that we live in the kingdom of God right now? The kingdom's here. You want me to answer that question? Israel's expectation was for a physical, political kingdom Where the king would physically rule from Jerusalem. Has that expectation come? No. But that kingdom that they anticipated also had a spiritual expectation, where the Spirit of God would be poured out upon the people and they would live under the rightful rule of their king, they would live in obedience. That They would live and obey his commands. They would be a holy people. The political aspect of the kingdom has not occurred. And, by the way, I don't think it is our responsibility to bring in that political kingdom, as some would say, that it's our job to accomplish on earth that political kingdom. I don't think that's our responsibility. The spiritual realities, though, of the kingdom have commenced. I want to say that again. The political, physical realities of the kingdom of God have not yet been realized. But the spiritual realities of that kingdom have indeed commenced we are living in a new age where god's spirit has been given to god's people we live enjoying the spiritual realities of the kingdom and even with those not in their fullness yet do you obey god perfectly i don't but He has given me His Spirit. And what is He doing with His Spirit? He is transforming us. He is transforming us. He is growing us. He is making us His holy people. That's what He's accomplishing. We live in the age which God is gathering His people. He's marking them by His Spirit, populating His kingdom. We also live in the age where his enemies oppose his kingdom and oppose those who are part of his kingdom. Do you understand that our lot in life, our lot in this world, is not, we, we are not living in a reality where we have political victory. I've been reading to my kids a book called Martyr of the Catacombs. Jerry Perrine loaned that book to me. I don't know if you've read it or not. Martyr of the Catacombs in it talks about the persecution there in Rome and how the Christians were driven down into the catacombs, the places where they buried the dead. And that's where they had to live because of persecution. And I thought as I was thinking through the kingdom and our place in the world right now, our place, our place in this age as the kingdom realities are ours in the spirit, our place is in the catacombs. That's where we That's where we are driven. See, I I think we become way too comfortable with the kingdoms of this world. I think we become way too comfortable living as part of the world. This is not our kingdom. This is not what we live for. This is not where our hope is found. We are the people of God's Spirit. The Spirit of God has been poured out upon His people. And His kingdom has come in. And, And that reality... That we live for, that puts us at odds against the political powers of the day. that puts us, at, puts us at odds with many of the people in our neighborhoods and those that don't want to hear about Jesus' reign and rule. We live in a new age, the last days, the last days before the day of the Lord. Which should change the way we preach the gospel, shouldn't it? Judgment is coming. Is judgment a popular part of the message today? Judgment is not a popular part of the message. When we we preach the gospel, we are often encouraged to use a salesman's type of approach. Win them through your winsomeness. Well, I'm not saying don't be winsome. Okay. Don't stand out on the corner with the sandwich board on and expect that to do anything. All right. But people, we, we have a message that is for salvation, but warning people of the judgment that is coming. That's next on the timeline, the day of the Lord. The new age is our present reality. He is bringing in his kingdom, populating his kingdom. And that new age brings a new relationship. So point number two, a new relationship. We live in a new age marked by the pouring out of the Spirit. And this brings with it a new relationship. God has given his Spirit to all flesh. And look at what he means by that. Look there at Acts chapter 2. Verse 17, in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your young men shall see visions. Your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants. In those days I will pour out my spirit and they shall prophesy. The term all flesh then here is referring to every member of the household of God. Young and old. Male and female, even the servants of the household of God, have been given the Spirit. All of His people will be given His Spirit, and it says they will prophesy. What does that mean? He he will—they will prophesy. I think a lot of times we think prophecy means telling the future. That's not what prophesying means prophesying when the prophets were given visions and dreams. And that's what he's saying. The prophets were the ones given the dreams and the visions. But he says, In that day, all of my people will be like prophets. And they will speak the truth of God. And they will speak about the mighty acts of God. They will prophesy who I am. My truth. Now this, this, promise that all flesh will receive his spirit and will prophesy is connected to a story in numbers chapter 11 i know i know i, I referenced joel earlier maybe you haven't read maybe you haven't read joel recently but i know you've read numbers 11 right numbers 11 and it's a story i'm sure all of you know really well moses had been given the spirit of god for leadership okay so so The the spirit being given to his people, that is not new. What is new is that the spirit is given to all of his people. So he gave Moses his spirit to lead his people. And Moses needed help in leading those people. And so he chose 70 elders. Do you remember this in Numbers? He chose 70 elders and God took the spirit that was on Moses and he divided it up and gave it... He shared it with those 70 elders, those 70 leaders. And when the 70 men had the Spirit of God come upon them, you know what they did? They prophesied. Again, they weren't telling the future. They began to speak the truths of God. They they began to declare who He was, His mighty acts. And they did so with power. It's amazing to think of. Well, apparently... Two of the 70 men, two of those 70 men, Eldad and Medad, Eldad and Medad, they didn't go